Welcome back to episode 146 of the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. Today's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat everything Marvel and more. This is Judy Stevens, producer. Hi, this is Christina Harrington, editor in the X-Men office. So we're doing a lot of fun science stuff happening um, all over Marvel, and one of the things we're really hitting at is we want to do more Women of Marvel science podcasts, and we're really excited because we're um, we have Jackie Faraday here. Say hello. Hi, everybody. My name is Jackie Faraday. And you are an astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City. That's right. I am actually a joint appointment between the astrophysics department and the education department. So I do a lot with education outreach for the general public. But my primary uh, duties are an everyday astrophysicist uh, with an office on the sixth floor of the Rose Center for Earth and Space in New York City. (laughs) I know, just an everyday astrophysicist. Just hanging out at the Museum of Natural History What is an everyday? astrophysicists do? I'm like a handy friend to have at a bar because everybody has astronomy questions especially after they have a drink or two they want to discuss <laughs> space with you. So I'm like really handy for my friends to text or send a message to about their questions about the universe. My expertise is um, studying objects that are outside of the solar system that are in what's called the solar neighborhood. So they're very close to the sun and they're really low mass and they're basically like planets. They're called brown dwarfs. They're in between where a star would be considered and where a planet would be considered, but I look at their atmospheres, and so I'm basically studying the weather patterns on them, what causes them to look the way that they do. I study them in detail, and so I really study weather on other worlds for objects that are very close to the sun and that are really cold and that are much more like Jupiter than they are like anything else. So that's my everyday science But I do a lot of different kinds of, uh, in my, I've studied high mass stars as well, stars that are super explosive and that might go supernova in our own galaxy at some point. And um, I've done things with things that are more star-like than not. One of the objects you might have heard of is called TRAPPIST. It was recently discovered to have seven planets around it, seven terrestrial planets. Everybody thought that they should go live there because we thought they might be habitable (laughs) and so there was a lot of conversation about moving to the trappist planets so that the parent star in that system is an object that i actually study and that i had studied and done a detailed study on um in my during my thesis yeah so my science is kind of fairly broad but that's still really cool to think about you know thinking about you know we all watch science fiction and we there are science fiction built within our comics but to think that that there are possibilities that all these other planets are out there and that could possibly have life on them but also looking at like the science of understanding like just thinking about atmosphere um so one of the things that we're going to be featuring jackie on are these marvel science videos that will be um coming out soon and one of the things we talked about was sort of atmosphere and how important an atmosphere is to gravity to us being able to breathe for us to be to function like thinking about those things are kind of amazing yeah i i think i love watching sci-fi movies and I love reading sci-fi books and a lot of times when I'm reading them I think how would I fit in to this 
to this story? Like, what would I be the expert in? Like, if you flew around and you were like, oh, should we land there? I could dissect the atmosphere of the world and tell you what it would be like for you or not. And you could give me just little bits of information about the object, and I'd be able to tell you the potential for your own existence, um, how it would impact you as a uh, assuming we're all humans in this science fiction story, how it would impact you uh, when you land and try and take a deep breath. So atmosphere is a, uh, it's, I mean, it's clearly a critical aspect of where we live here on Earth, what our atmosphere is composed of. And what's really fascinating to think about is humans are tailored very specifically for this planet. And we are tailored to the gravity of this planet, but also, and most especially, to the atmosphere that we have here. So we cannot really vary things too much and still survive on this world. So unless humans actually modify their own genetic form to be able to change and breathe elsewhere, we really have a narrow target of what another world might look like before we could actually exist there. I love this because this is such a, a like a ripe topic in, in science fiction, especially now. It seems to become pretty topical, like talking about other places where we could we could go and escape and live in. And it sounds like it'd have to be a very specific atmosphere for humans to be able to thrive on another planet. Yeah. How? Yeah. Is that how? Do you even like look into that? Like, how do you uh, explore the atmospheres of, of planets that are so far away? What are what is your like process for that? I guess. It's becoming more and more realistic and possible to be studying the atmospheres of other worlds. Uh, I study the atmospheres of worlds that are much more like Jupiter. And so those worlds are far easier to study because I can just stare at them with a telescope, which is what I actually do. That's so interesting. Yeah, so I wrote a paper two years ago, or maybe it was three years ago. It was on the atmosphere, or it was, the, this was the basics of the paper, to look at what might be in the atmosphere of this object whose nickname, it's not very exciting, but 0855. It's also okay. the first okay. four numbers of its coordinates in the sky. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so we refer to it as 0855. I keep thinking it sounds really cool because it's it's in my head. I know what kind of object it is, but to people, it's not like calling it. No, it sounds like something out of Star Trek or something. Yeah, it really 0855. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be nice if we could have called it something like Groot or <laughs> we can start <laughs> we don't have a good sci-fi name for it uh, but 0855 is this object that was discovered by an astronomer at Penn State named Kevin Lumen so it could have been called Lumen's object but Lumen has a bunch of objects named after him so he doesn't need another one um, but 0855 was discovered it was in 2013 Maybe it was 14, so that's like three or four years ago. It is the fourth closest system to the sun, and it was only uncovered four years ago because oh, wow. it's really cold. And when Kevin uncovered it, I became like obsessed with trying to see what was in its atmosphere because the object, the reason why it was missed was because it was so cold. To give you an idea of how cold Jupiter is, and I have to give you this number in, in Kelvin because mm -hmm. that's the temperature scale that we use in 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 astronomy, so it's 125 degrees Kelvin. This object is 100 degrees warmer than it, and that's it. It's just 100 degrees warmer than Jupiter. 
and we can study it in detail. So I wrote a paper where I, I looked at um, I looked at it in some images, and I was able to say that it looked very much like it had water ice clouds because that's the temperature range that it was that it was in. Then a year later, a colleague of mine got really excited about it, and we we took one of the world's largest telescopes and we stared at it, the telescope called um, Gemini, which is in Hawaii. And we stared at it and it took three full nights of one of the largest telescopes that we have on Earth uh, to stare at just one object. And we were able to take the light, break it up and see what it was made of. And we saw indications that it had water ice clouds on it. So this object is very exciting because we are literally studying what's in the atmosphere of it from the thing is like seven light years away. That's so incredible. It's really cool. Um, and this is what we're going to be doing more and more of. You'll hear a lot more of this. And it's starting to seem like science fiction is colliding with science because wow. we are studying the atmospheres of places that people could realistically look at and think, could we go there? And that's also what's going on in sort of some of it's like backroom stuff that's going on right now trying to figure out if interstellar travel is really possible. And it's looking more and more like it is. There's this Breakthrough Initiative, Breakthrough Starshot Initiative project that's funded, and it is seriously looking at um, light speed, closing, closing in on light speed travel, which wow. would get us to some of these objects. Now it's just a matter of combining our ability to really look at these objects in detail and say for sure what they may be composed of. And so what are the best targets to decide we want to go to? Is it the closest objects or is it, is it the objects that you would be bona fide? You can be much more sure of it having an atmosphere that would be friendly for you. Wow, that's incredible. I can't believe you just look at it. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to be like, okay, well, sit back. There's a bunch of equipment. Let me walk you through it. Yeah. You're like, no, we went to a telescope and we looked at it. We examined the light. That's so interesting. I mean, I will say it was really hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did just chalk it down to like, ah, oh, it wasn't that bad. But it was, it took many of us that are all experts on this kind of stuff that uh, had to figure out when once we had the data, we had to be sure that we were getting all of the corrections from the Earth's atmosphere mm -hmm. out and from, you have to use a bright star in order to correct for lines both in our atmosphere and potential problems with your data. It took a lot of, a lot of us being sure that we, we, we knew what we were doing, but I'm very confident in the results we've gotten out so far. And this target, 0855, exciting. The name gets more exciting the more I say it, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. It starts to sound better and better. So 0855 is going to be a target for the next generations. Like next generation space telescopes all want to look at this object because it's basically like studying a giant Jupiter that's out there on its own. And it could be supporting little moons like Jupiter does very well. It could be supporting a Europa or an Io, which could be worlds that, that could be on the habitable side. Wow. So, yeah, very exciting stuff. And, and one of the things you also work on are these backyard, having non-scientists uh, work with you guys to find other planets and options out there. Yeah, so this is a, actually a good link-in because 0855 was discovered by this method where you essentially 
look for something that just moves in images that were taken with the baseline of time between them. So you can take an image of the sky and then wait a little bit of time. So a year, two years, three years. Then take a picture of the sky again. Now most stars, you see them move through the night because we're orbiting. Mm -hmm. Because the the Earth is rotating and then going around the sun, but it's our own rotation that's actually causing us to see the stars move. But the stars themselves do move in the sky. It's a motion that we call proper motion. And if you take an image of the sky and then wait a bit of time and then take another, and you can do a really good job of image... Um, calibration. So you take your images and line them up precisely on top of each other, you can actually see an object move. And 0855 was discovered when Kevin Lumen was basically blinking through images. And they, he was searching for an object of this kind. So that inspired me to say, this is one... I don't want to go home every night and have to blink a thousand images, which is what Kevin did. And I, I, mean, I am very proud of him. Yeah, that's a lot of work. However, I was very interested in finding other objects like that, but the amount of work that goes into flipping through images and just looking for something is not something I wanted to personally do every night. So I thought a good idea would be we could find it via other people helping out. And then Mark Kushner, who's a scientist at NASA, he was giving a talk about a citizen science project that he was working on. Him and I kind of got together, and I was telling him about this potential idea of finding cold, rogue planet objects that were out there. And so Mark and I decided, let's just turn this into a citizen science project. So we took the entire data set of a, that NASA had put out called WISE. It's the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. It images the entire sky in mid-infrared wavelengths. So we are all looking around this room, and all we're seeing is optical, because that's all our eye is tuned to. But you can get spacecrafts that are tuned to different wavelengths, which is what why this NASA spacecraft is. And the key here is that the colder an object you are, the more of your of your light, of your flux, of your heat, of your radiation is going to come out at longer and longer wavelengths. So if you want to find a cold object, cold compact object near the sun, a rogue planet, you should look in the mid-infrared. So that's what we've done, taken all of the images, set them up on a website that Zooniverse is hosting for us, an enormous amount of data, and we've asked citizen scientists to participate, to blink images and do this task, which is which anybody can do. And while you're doing it, you are really participating in a scientific process that can lead to something very exciting. So we have the citizens blink, look for something that moves. If it moves, they mark it for us. And we launched in mid-February. We had an immediate response from people where we had thousands of volunteers. Right now we're up to 40 or 50,000 volunteers. Wow. They've classified over 4 million objects. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty pretty good. That's awesome. And in the six days after we launched, one of the, we had a citizen alert us to an object that he thought looked really good. And we decided that looks like something that really moves and is cold and we'll follow that up. I contacted 
the director of the NASA Infrared Telescope Facility, which I've used many, many times over my career, and asked him if he could give me some director's discretionary time to follow up this exciting object, which they only do on occasion, and only if you can make a good case for why you want immediate follow-up. And he said yes, and um, so 14 days after we'd been alerted to the object, I took a spectrum, so I took the light, passed it through the telescope, broke it up, saw what it was made of, and it was a beautiful, brand new, completely undiscovered until that time, very low temperature brown dwarf, um, which for a while we were calling Bob Star because the, the citizen that had brought it to our attention, his name was Bob. <laughs> so we called it Bob Star. <laughs> and um, so we wrote a paper on it that was accepted last week. It's in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, and four citizen scientists are co-authors on the paper. Bob, who brought it to our attention, is a science teacher in Tasmania. Wow. He was the first to bring it to our attention. Then there's three others. There's somebody from Serbia, somebody from Russia, and then somebody from the U.S. So the U.S. was represented in this particular (laughs) citizen science project. Uh, but the and we have many many more candidates like this. Now I'm just waiting for official telescope time so I can do lots of objects all at once. But this was a proof of concept that one citizens can get involved in uncovering new worlds that are nearby, and these worlds are cold. They're not going to be the habitable worlds that you necessarily want to move to, but they could have moons around mm-hmm. them that might be that might be the worlds that you want to move out to. So exciting stuff on the horizons. And that's called Backyard Worlds, backyardworlds.org. And anybody can participate in this project. I mean, I think that's so amazing. That's I, I feel like every time I talk to another scientist, uh, it's about how, you know, you didn't have to go and get a PhD in this to interact and have fun and learn. And even, and even just like someone from Tasmania yeah. can you know, access can go and, and play with science. And I think that that's really great. And these projects are pretty phenomenal. So obviously people at home, like when you're listening to this podcast, you can go check out the site and click through and maybe you can find the next cool dwarf planet. Yeah, it seems like such a... We're going to take a short pause from our science discussion to talk to you about Loot Crate. If you have not heard, Loot Crate has created the Marvel Gear and Goods Crate, which is the ultimate subscription box for Marvel fans. Every box brings you items you can't get anywhere else, plus you can live the Marvel lifestyle for just $39.99 a month, which is over an $80 value. Their next theme is Spider-Verse, and if anyone knows the importance of downtime, it's Peter Parker, Miles Morales, Gwen Stacy, Jessica Drew, and their wall-crawling peers. Unwind after a hard day with the denizens of the Spider-Verse. And we'll deliver to you a Spider-Man sleep mask and other amazing gear that will set you up in typical heroic fashion for your next silk-swinging adventure. But remember, you have until 9 p.m. Pacific on July 15th to subscribe. So head to LootCrate.com slash MarvelGear and use promo code MarvelWoman to save $3 on your subscription today. So while you're listening to this podcast, head over to LootCrate.com slash MarvelGear. Now back to science. Find the next cool dwarf planet. Yeah, it seems like such a great global, like, 
community sort of driving a thing. You have people from all over the world looking outside of our world and, and trying to find new, interesting locations. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful that a science teacher like was able to help you guys out in that regard. Like that's amazing. Yeah, we've never met these citizens. They we've only communicated via email. It's such a modern day story yeah. of how science can get done that you don't need to you don't actually need the physical contact uh, because the distance between all of us was just too large. We had people all over, but uh, it was in putting this project out there that it reached them and they got interested and they participated and they found something that no one else had had been able to achieve before. So in that way, they've achieved a real scientific uh, goal and agenda that scientists are trying to achieve. And so it's also, it's really representative of what's going on in science right now. We're in this era of big data where large amounts of data are coming in that need to be analyzed. And we're using computer science more and more. And some of the tasks computers still aren't as good at as the human eye could be. That might change in the future. But we're in this like sweet spot where you can participate in these projects and make a big difference in, in what we're doing. And you are a scientist on the project. Well, and another one of the things that you work on, which is obviously not necessarily looking at a computer and trying to find uh, things out there in space, is Manhattan Hedge, which, as we are sitting in New York City, um, (laughs) Manhattan Hedge is an amazing experience to sort of see science in real life happening. Um, And you are uh, the person that decides when Manhattan Hedge is happening in the city. And for those at home who do not know, Manhattan Hedge is basically when the sun sets... Um, at the perfect uh, moment at 57th Street, 42nd. It's all over the oh, it's city. All the streets. It's all yeah. the cross streets. So the, the key with Manhattan Hinge is that Manhattan is a gridded city, and it's the grid that creates Manhattan Hinge. So the grid of Manhattan, which comes from a city plan that was way back in the early 1800s, this decision was made to make avenues with 90-degree cross streets. And when that happened, when they placed this grid down on the city of Manhattan, they created a bullseye for the sun to hit twice a year on either side of the summer solstice. And back in the late 90s, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is the director of the Hayden Planetarium, where I work, so Neil's office is down the hall from mine, Neil started picking up on what was going on, noticing it. In fact, drivers would have noticed. If you're in the middle of a street at sunset on the Manhattan Hinge Times, you would have noticed that, look at that, the sun's right in my face. It's it's blinding me. (laughs) So others would have noticed it, but Neil, being an astronomer, actually took note of it. And Stan Mack, who was a cartoonist for The Village Voice, did a little piece on Neil and drew in a cartoon all the things that Neil does. And one of the things he wrote down in this little cartoon, it's a tiny little piece of a cartoon, is a time and a date uh, that Neil was telling him about of a Manhattan Hinge. And at that point, no one really knew about it. This was back when you could still get into the middle of the street at 42nd Street and be just you back doing it. Then in 2001, Natural History Magazine did a special edition of Summer in the Summer of Stars and it was all things astronomically related to the city. So lots of things in the city. There's a sundial in Midtown. There's 
delis that have cosmic signs on them. And then there was a picture that Neil had taken on 34th Street of a Manhattan Hinge. And that was the first time it was published. And after that, Neil would send this email around to museum employees. I was one back a while ago. And that's when I was an educator before I even started back in the science track to get my PhD. And I became fascinated with it. It was so fun. It's the summer. It's sunset. You can be outside. <laughs> like, everything about it was perfect. And I'm like, okay, awesome. I'm going to go. I'm going to go look at Manhattan Hinge. So back then, again, there was, like, no one outside. So it was super fun. And years kind of went by. And finally, I said, you know what? I think the museum should start doing a public program about this. So we started to do it. And that's when I realized, like, I think we could even do a better job on the calculation of the date and the time. And so this is how I became the calculator for the the female human science calculator for Manhattan. (laughs) So every year I look at the charts and make sure we've got the day and the time right, publish it. And now if you walk outside on the dates this year, May 29th, May 30th, and July 12th, July 13th, you and stand in the middle of the street. This is why it's dangerous to be in the middle of the street at sunset. You will see the sun just as it's setting. It kisses the grid and then falls under. And part of why it's so cool and fun is that there's this misnomer on what the sun's going to do. It doesn't come straight down your buildings because that's actually not the orientation that the sun, the Manhattan is in or that the sun comes in at. It comes from the, it comes from the south. And so you have to wait for this moment that it's very low before it starts to peak between the buildings. And you'll see that the math is correct, (laughs) which came from me, so I have to be proud of this, (laughs) that you could predict exactly the angle that it's coming down at and the exact time when it's going to perfectly intersect what we've calculated the angle of the grid of Manhattan to be. So it kisses the grid, and then it goes away. And so in a week and a half from right now, May 29th, May 30th, is the first Manhattan Hinge. Then there's a summer solstice, which happens in the end of June. And then on the other side of that, it's symmetrical on either side of that, July 12th, July 13th. And there's a little, there's actually a little key to this, a little secret. And that is that between the May date and the July date, this is the only time of the year where the sun will actually cross buildings as it's setting. So the way I calculate it in May, it's when it kisses the grid and enters the grid of Manhattan. So I usually call it the welcome to the grid for the sun <laughs> one. And then every day between the May up until the summer solstice, it will be a little higher and higher and higher and higher. So it'll cross the buildings and then it'll set north. And then after the summer solstice, it gets lower and lower and lower until the July Manhattan Hinge, where it kisses the grid again, and then it will will not cross your buildings until the following year. And that's all just geometry of the Earth-Sun system. I mean, it is kind of amazing. I've lived here for 13 years, and I finally was able to do it last year. And I made sure I put put a calendar note, and I, like, stayed late that day so I could walk up to 57th Street so I could watch it. But now it is kind of like a a little bit of an an, an insanity because it's all these people know about it. So they all, like, they all, like, congregate on the corners. And then when the light's green, they all run across the street. (laughs) And basically, like, it's like... 
you're 40 or 50 people on this intersection taking, like, taking, everyone's got to get their Instagram photo. Yep. And then, then they're taking selfies. And, like, it's really hilarious. And then you watch all the other New Yorkers and other people being like, what's going on? I, I actually <laughs> love that part of it, that it becomes this moment where New Yorkers aren't always super friendly to each other. But this is one of those where... Like, people are really curious what is going on. I often like to go to 42nd Street, Pershing Square. Right above it, right above Grand Central, there's an overpass mm-hmm. where you can safely stand and be in the middle of the street. But that, I gave that secret away years ago, and it is just packed with people. And uh, But you get this great viewpoint of what happens on the street for all of these people that are jumping in the street and cabs are honking. And then you watch, like, the those that don't know what's going on literally like looking around and then asking each other and then conversations start and people are friendly and it's I think that that's that's just like a fun moment and again it's like summer no one's gonna be mad hopefully unless it's cloudy yeah Yeah. and then they're mad at you for ruining their Manhattan Edge. <laughs> what is definitely really fun, I think that if you're in Manhattan at the time and you haven't seen it, it's also a beautiful moment in time. Like it, it, the oranges and the reds and the colors and then the lights blinking off the buildings with the glass. I mean, it's really a, a stunning moment. Like it is yeah. the beauty of Earth and the sun and how lucky we are to be on this planet. Yeah, exactly. and, all of that. And the city. Yeah, yeah like, and, I, and city, I've, yeah. I've been here for a bit and I've, I've never done it. Every year I'm like, oh no, it was last week. Yeah. And I've like missed it just barely. So now I have to set an alarm on my phone and alert, like you do, Judy, and like yep. actually do this thing because it, it just sounds even better and better. It is one of these, I like to think of the sun personified where it gets all ready for its big close up because it knows. Manhattan Henge days, it's going to be photographed up and down the wazoo. So as the sun is kind of coming down, it gets ready for its big moment. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those few days where you could have a celebrity standing in the middle of the street. But if they were facing, if they were facing the wrong direction, all cameras are pointing at the sun. Like that is the direction people want to be looking at. It is the sun's big day to be photographed because it's being photographed perfectly framed by these epic buildings that we have here in New York City. So it's any of the cross streets that you can see all the way to New Jersey. And we do have to thank New Jersey as well because (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't get enough credit for Manhattan Henge. That New Jersey has a, a low skyline, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Because if it had a huge skyline, then the buildings would get in the way and you would have sort of messed up photos and a messed up topography. But luckily, most of New Jersey is pretty low. And so, thank you, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Swamplands of New Jersey. <laughs> I, I'm from New Jersey, so I always have to give the shout out to my, my birth state. <laughs> Gotta do it. Yeah, but New Jersey is our helpful, is, is very helpful. And the fact that we have a river flanking us on either side, we're an island, and all of that together means that we're going to have, like, a gorgeous sunset. And like you say, it's a, a sunsets in general, I think people should try and prioritize because every sunset is different. The mm-hmm. colors will always look a little bit different. The clouds make for some interesting different differences in what you'll be able to see from the light as, you're, as the sun is setting. Uh, you get a lot more of the 
refraction of light as the sun is getting lower and colors will be changing. Well, that's why I say the best sunsets are when it's slightly cloudy, not super cloudy, because then, and the trick is always to look where the sun is, but then look up and behind Mm -hmm. you, because that's when you get those beautiful, like, pinks and purples. Yeah, it's like cotton candy. The clouds are just suddenly And you, like, look up. Every once in a while, we have those beautiful sunsets where you look up, and it's this beautiful color, and you're like, oh, it's so nice. Especially when you, like, get out of work, and you've been working all day, and you haven't left the house, the building and yeah. you're like, oh, look, <laughs> there's nature. <laughs> oh, look, the sun is still up. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's also bad. Well, um, this has all been, like, incredibly amazing. I feel like we could talk forever. And maybe yeah. we'll have you back to talk more as you sort of discover more of these brown dwarfs. Um, but where can people find more about the Natural History Museum and what you've been doing? So American Museum of Natural History, we've got a website, amnh.org. You can have a look at the physical sciences division on there, and you can see all of the astrophysics Department. Um, you can find my webpage on there, and all of the science that I do is connected on my my webpage. Backyardworlds.org is linked on my page. You can have a um, listeners can look out for our press release on the Backyard Worlds project that's coming out, and um, visit the American Museum of Natural History and the Rose Center for Earth and Space because what we have there is, okay, you can't go outside necessarily, but you can come visit us. And in July, I'm doing a special Astronomy Live in the Hayden Planetarium Dome. It's an evening program. We usually do them on Tuesdays. And that program is going to be a special one where we're calling it Ask the Astronomer, where people will be able to submit their questions ahead of time. And we will be flying live with the digital universe software that we have in the dome, answering their whatever astronomy question you might have about the universe from an asteroid that might kill you to a black hole that might kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you want. People tend to want to ask about the things that are going to kill us. (laughs) That's a common question. But we... um, we're going to be flying flying you through the answers live. So it should be interesting. We've never tried that before. It's going to be myself, Emily Rice, who's one of my close colleagues, a female that I run a research group with, and then Brian Levine, who's an educator at the museum. So check that out in July. And uh, we have a couple of other live astronomy programs going on in the summer that are really fun. If people are in New York City, they can come by, visit and um, see the universe in all of its gorgeousness that you can see it in, that you can't see it anywhere else but the Hayden Planetarium Dome. Well, that sounds amazing. Yeah, sounds great. I kind of want to go to that. You should. I'll get you in. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. This has been amazing. Very educational, too. I yeah. feel like I've learned so many things, which Yay. is awesome. Because space is great. Yeah. Space, space is great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the... I like the collision of science fiction and science as well. Yeah. So it's cool to be in the Marvel... In, the Mar- in, in Marvel. I feel yeah. like I'm in a science fiction book as, the, as a scientist, ready to... Ready to find out what all the characters are going to do next. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Okay, well, uh, make sure you guys check out the Natural History Museum. If you're in New York City or if you're traveling, it is the place to be. It's one of my favorite museums in the, in the city, if not my favorite. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's it. I, I, obviously, stay tuned to Marvel's YouTube for all of our Marvel Science videos coming soon. And uh, we'll check you guys later. This is Marvel, your universe.
as always, if you have questions or suggestions, please email us at womanof at marvel.com or tweet at marvel with hashtag womanofmarvel. We'll check you guys later. This is Marvel, your universe. Marvel.